podcasting from downtown Toronto, Canada. It's the Medicine Club, a podcast about medicine, medical innovation, and medical culture. But lately, it's mainly been about COVID-19. My name is Dr. Kasha Prasada. I'm an emergency doctor in Toronto. And I'm Dr. Samir Grover. I'm a gastroenterologist and I practice at St. Michael's Hospital. We are in episode five of our podcast. Today, we wanted to talk about, to start an interesting theory with respect to pathogenesis of certain manifestations of COVID-19. Yeah, exactly. So there's been, um, I think Italy's had the longest experience in the West with COVID-19 patients. They're in, I think, week three, week four of their crisis. And there was a recent uh, paper um, published um, in one of the critical care um, publications and also in the European Society of uh, Critical Care Medicine's webinar, in which they're presenting that there's two main uh, phenotypes with COVID-19. So I think many of us have seen descriptions of what we call like the, the happy hypoxic guy, like the, the patient who has a, a oxygen saturation that's in the 60s, but doesn't appear to have increased work of breathing, appears well, um, and then deteriorates quickly once intubated. Now they're calling this the, the phenotype L for low elasticity versus um, and high compliance versus the traditional ARDS uh, pattern, which is they're calling uh, phenotype H. Now they're thinking that possibly there might be what's, what they're calling microvascular thrombosis, um, which would mean like millions and millions of tiny blood clots hitting microscopic vessels, in turn causing um, failure um, on a body-wide scale as you have clots develop all over the body. This is one of the reasons why you see um, you know, high lactate, why you see like, kidney failure requiring dialysis, and what's interesting is that a sort of a unifying theory of this came from a very unconventional source, a gastroenterologist working at an outpatient clinic in California, who I guess never really forgot his uh, physiology for med school, put together a fairly plausible theory about viral-induced cytokine storm causing severe endothelial dysfunction and causing a severe um, a reduction in TPA and causing this thrombosis. And this is a pattern that's also seen in dengue virus. It's also seen in Marburg virus and Ebola virus. You know, heparin and other anticoagulants have been used um, off-label for those cases. And I'm told um, that New York ICUs have started to use um, anticoagulation. Now the debate is, do they use the prophylaxis dose or the treatment dose? And what parameters do you want monitor? The question I have to you is, um, has this actually been seen in terms of imaging? There's been a heck of a lot of imaging that's been done in patients with uh, COVID-19. Do you actually see thrombosis in these patients? Um, there's been reports, nothing published that we could find. Um, there's a lot of preprint stuff coming out, but not a lot of imaging evidence behind this. There are reports of people having pulmonary embolus without DVT, and then people, you know, people without a history of thrombophilia with this. Uh, you know, the other thing that was noticed early on in Italy is that you know obesity seemed like the biggest risk factor, and we know, you know, the traditional Framingham risk factors are associated with endothelial dysfunction, things like obesity, diabetes, hypertension. So that correlation of hypertension, you know, pre-existing medical conditions, they said early, um, it could be this, that uh, whatever condition you have that leads to endothelial dysfunction could lead you to down this path. Are there harbingers of, uh, of endothelial dysfunction or thrombosis that can be picked up on blood tests or on anything else that sort of pretend whether patients are going to proceed down type L or type H? So I think what, they're, what in Italy in the, in the paper they described is a biphasic course. So kind of like what Boris Johnson went through, like, you know, things are looking great, they're, they're doing fine, and then suddenly 
this cascade sort of erupts and you see, you know, you see a decrease in, in inflammatory markers like CRP, ESR, but then you see the um, derangements in D-dimer, fibrinogen, and then you see the uh, rapid deterioration. And I think it's been described in multiple case reports where you see like a quick uh, decline, cardiovascular decline, and then, you know, a cardiac arrest and death in some of these cases. And this usually happens um, in this biphasic course. So one uh, potential uh, implication of this is that um, if one sees that uh, those derangements with respect to coagulation parameters or D-dimer elevation, that what can institute a therapy, either uh, sort of heparinization or even something like TPA at that juncture to try to prevent this cascade? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, again, like uh, this is, you know, this is something for the hematologists to really discuss. And I think we've seen a lot of evidence that they're really taking this theory seriously this week. Uh, there's been updated guidelines um, I think just a few days ago to start using, um, you know, at least uh, prophylactic dose heparin. Um, and there's already a number of studies um, in Italy and in the U.S. to study this. And, uh, multiple RCTs are being started. Um, so I think we're going to have more information on this soon. And it's going to sort of uncover one of the big mysteries with this. There's other theories, too, about, you know, it does the, is there interference with hemoglobin metabolism? There's also an interesting theory that the illness behaves kind of like high altitude pulmonary edema as well. The strange behavior of this virus, I think, slowly is getting broken down. I think it's a great testament to an open culture that we're seeing. You're seeing a lot of collaboration between academics and practitioners on the front lines on especially Twitter and other forums. And I think, you know, why, why didn't the, the Chinese figure this out? I think they don't have as much of an open academic culture. And a lot of this stuff is only being discovered now with open discussions about it. The next thing we wanted to discuss was uh, getting into outside of theories to more practical things with respect to uh, public health and COVID-19, particularly in Canada. Uh, we want to discuss contact tracing. The issue is like, well, how do we relax the restrictions that we have right now? We look at, you know, the examples of South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan are brought on because these are, you know, the countries that are dealing most successfully. If you look at Google reports on movements, you're seeing these countries have the lowest transmission of uh, coronavirus, but they still have pretty good movements in their retail spaces and their parks. They seem to have more of a normal life than we do. Now, how have they managed this? Um, they've, in, uh, they've developed sort of these somewhat intrusive apps that monitor location and then feedback to public health authorities telling you who you've been in contact with for the last few weeks. Singapore's developed one. It's built around a Bluetooth radio. So you carry your device around. Um, it pings all the other devices with Bluetooth on around you. And whoever you're close to, I think it's something like within um, six feet for more than a minute, it'll store an encrypted ID of that device. And then if you develop a positive test, who you've been in contact with is sent to the Ministry of Health and then decrypted. So, um, and then all those people are contacted and isolated. And Hong Kong's using uh, tracking bracelets, and uh, Taiwan is using, um, you know, very like geofencing or using the mobile phone providers to track you. So a lot of different approaches. I've I know of uh, several groups um, that are working on a similar app. Uh, MIT is working on um, one called uh, Safe Paths. Um, it's an open source project um, which is using encrypted GPS data to try to protect privacy, but also allow for uh, public health uh, information. Um, and there's a number of efforts, a couple of efforts in Toronto, at least. And so we'll see, um, we'll see how that goes. But um, 
Yeah, and technology good. will uh, will win over this over uh, over manual tracing in the sense that people won't be able to remember who they came to contact with, and you know people who are around them are probably just as much of a risk than people who are. So this, what I'm saying is that people who are unknown to to you that are around you are probably as much of a risk as proximity to people that you do know. So sort of historically going back and trying to remember contacts is uh, a doomed strategy. Yeah, exactly. Like you, I think the entire U of T, University of Toronto medical class was just hired as contact tracers. Now they, they're using 19th century techniques and using people to try to get people to jog their memories. And, you know, like we're looking at an outbreak, at least in Ontario, that's going to fester in our, in our long-term care homes. You're going to see continuous new contacts coming out of these centers. And, you know, the traditional way can work, but um, the new methods may, may, uh, may be helpful. The debate around privacy is going to be an interesting one. Like how much privacy do we give up in exchange for trying to live normal lives again? And I think that's a debate that needs to happen sooner than later. Now, you mentioned long-term care facilities, and this is really the gigantic tragedy that's unfolding in, uh, in, in Canada and I'm guessing throughout North America as well. Uh, long-term care facilities for a variety of reasons have become not only hotbeds for, uh, for COVID-19, um, they become uh, areas where COVID-19 will be transmitted across from patient to patient. And the patients who are in long-term care facilities uh, tend to be elderly with uh, morbidities and may not be offered um, intensive care uh, resources as these resources uh, get rationed in the future. Is there an argument that with long-term care facilities becoming vectors for a disease that people who are working at long-term care facilities should be tested? Oh, definitely. Like I think we, we discussed in our last podcast, they were even restricting procedure masks from them. And now we've seen what happens. I think we were, we're, we were focused so hard on hardening our acute care hospitals, uh, drilling, practicing, building field um, equipment, field placements. But you know the long-term care homes are kind of the soft underbelly. They're staffed, they're understaffed chronically. They're staffed by an itinerant workforce that often is very low, um, with very low pay, and they work, you know, two or three part-time jobs in different centers. So this um, was ripe to happen. Um, It wasn't foreseen, and it's something that we can um, hopefully get under control. Otherwise, all the other measures of social distancing will be futile if we keep seeding new infections from these homes, and there's hundreds of them. The other place that's becoming... uh a vector for transmission is, uh, is hospitals. Um, we talked again about this in, uh, in uh, the last podcast and two podcasts ago, uh, ago as well. Um, and when patients are admitted to the hospital, um, oftentimes, um, even in the absence of typical COVID-19 symptoms, um, testing gets done that eventually reveals either nasopharyngeal swabs or imaging that they do have COVID-19. Should we be testing all admitted patients for, uh, for COVID-19? I think it's a good idea. Like um, at uh, one of the university hospitals, they did an interesting study. So they they added on a CT chest, a non-contrast CT chest, low radiation to any CT abdomen that was done. Out of 90 CTs that were done for abdominal pain, 22 came back with COVID changes in the pneumonia, in the chest. Wow. These were asymptomatic, no cough, no um, nothing, no sore throat, nothing. Um, so this thing is everywhere and much more prevalent than we know the testing of all inpatients would help with surveillance you know i think we need to expand it and do population-wide testing to see you know what uh, layer of you know what antibodies are formed in the population as well as i've read that ontario has only used one quarter of its testing capacity which is i'm not sure why that's the case Hmm. 
What about to workers in hospitals? Uh, I know that uh, our workforce is uh, already pretty uh, uh, tight as it is, um, particularly with changes that have been made in staffing. But uh, would it not make sense then to test all healthcare workers? Um, if healthcare workers test positive for COVID in the absence of symptoms, presumably they're uh, asymptomatically shedding the virus and are doing so to hospitals and to vulnerable patients and to colleagues working in hospitals, and they could potentially be removed from the hospital environment. Right. Is it something, uh, is it, what are the plans that you've seen? I, I've not seen any plans, actually. I've uh, sort of seen discussions on Twitter with respect to it and uh, sort of Bayesian theory comes out and uh, the concern with respect to what to do about uh, false negatives and whether that could be reassurance that's uh, that's flawed. And also uh, uh, the rollout of exactly like you mentioned, should this be a one-shot deal or should it be something that's recurrence also comes up as a question. Well, I guess... If it's, yeah, it's the, the PCR test has such a high um, false negative rate. One thing would be useful is to identify um, a cohort of healthcare workers who are, who've developed antibodies already. Um, and then these are the people who, um, um, you know, that, well, actually there's another debate of how, how strong the antibody response is to COVID-19. Mm. So then there's an ethical debate. If you have a cohort of healthcare workers who are immune, how immune are they? Can you keep throwing them into dangerous situations? I think testing healthcare workers already they have a priority, but they should definitely should be higher priority because they could spread it to thousands and thousands of patients. And it's a good trial run for when we need mass testing for the next t- stage when we go to contact tracing and et cetera. We need to be able to test on the scale of millions of people a week in Ontario versus just a few thousand. I know that uh, we've been discussing PPE and attire quite a bit, but uh, there's been one uh, dramatic uh, reversal that's taken place with respect to public health advice in Ontario, and that is uh, masks for all for the population. Dr. Teresa Tam, who's been uh, a fantastic force to uh, uh, providing information to Ontario with as the lead, provided an opinion that was different from an opinion that was provided previously, wherein masks were not recommended for the general population, and now they are. And that's a, a fairly uh, a significant change, particularly when you take a look at the ramifications of the fact that when the virus was very clearly being community spread, uh, perhaps that potentially could have been mitigated through the use of masks uh, two, three, four weeks ago. That's the thing. Like, I'm not as generous towards Dr. Tam as you are um, regarding this. Like, I think from the get-go, our public health authorities have been two to four weeks behind what best practices have been. You know, Taiwan closed its um, border to China, you know, January 4th, like um, five days after the first outbreak was reported in Wuhan. Uh, All of the Asian countries that have done well have had masking in place, I think, since since the beginning. And they've also had much better um, luck at, um, you know, doing and forcing things like isolation and quarantine. You know, we only started really screening or or um, really enforcing uh, home isolation about a week ago, two weeks ago. You know, this and now we're in March versus this outbreak it began in January. Or in April now. Yeah. In April, April yeah. sorry. Wow. So the other thing is, uh, you know, we shouldn't criticize Dr. Tam for the reversal. I think, you know, it's a decision that will come to save a lot of lives. Uh, however, I, I wish it was made earlier. I wish that we didn't tell the public that this was against science. Now there's going to be a loss of faith in uh, public health authorities. But I think there needs to be, this should force a real rethink of the decision-making that occurred at the early stages of this crisis. Did we take too much direction from the WHO? Um, Other countries that didn't, like Taiwan, are doing much better than we are, and they're far closer to living normal lives than we are. 
The mask debate is uh, an interesting one in healthcare circles because decision-making around supply of PPE trumping uh, decision-making around the population in general. And this sort of excludes um, what you've been espousing for a very long time, Kashif, that masks don't necessarily need to be uh, so the mass-produced industrial masks and that there are temporary masks that can be create, created, ersatz masks that can be created at home that at least will provide some barrier protection. Should the public be using and creating masks like this now? I think so. Um, the evidence obviously is poor that it protects you from um, droplets or aerosols of any kind, but it can uh, you know, help um, screen droplets that you might emit from a cough. Um, I think any healthcare worker um, that works in a high density like uh, environment with lots of COVID patients should be wearing an N95 and airborne precautions like what the Chinese have been wearing from the get go. Um, I think you know the we're seeing the sew the sewing masks movement. We're seeing a lot of really positive um, engagement by the public on this. I'm starting to see it more common even in my my own neighborhood. Um, so I think um, I think it will help especially if you're, you know, working in, we can probably return people to offices sooner. If everyone in the office wears a mask, we can probably open shops sooner. Um, some countries uh, basically, like I think the Czech Republic got the public to wear masks in two days. And now you can't get into shops in Austria without a mask on, uh, but their shops are open. Ours aren't. It's, the, it's sort of like the herd immunity of masks. Exactly. <laughs> um, do you think that, uh, and it's a punchy question, do you think that uh, public health is making decisions based upon scarcity of resources as opposed to uh, making decisions in the best interest to people based on the fact that there's insufficient supply? I think so. Like we've seen such revisions of guidelines. Um, we've seen like, you know, the uh, basically that initial decisions, uh, they told us not to wear any masks in the hospital actually at the beginning. Now universal masking from pressure from um, mostly American physicians that's come. So I think we were, that was at least told to me explicitly that, you know, supply uh, was an issue, but what, you know, and I don't think um, you can blame the public health authorities, but I think you can in some ways blame them for not anticipating the supply shock that happened. Yeah. It was pretty obvious like in January as supplies disappeared in North America in around January, February, as, a lot of suppliers being repatriated back to China that this was going to happen. It was only until early March when local industry started to retool. And now in the first week of April, we're seeing local production of masks, the first run coming out this week. So why didn't this happen in January, February? Um, it didn't take a degree in rocket science to see this was going to happen. So now our workers are going in uh, unprotected compared to what you know the Chinese uh, colleagues are which is basically an N95 mask, a surgical mask on top, face shields, neck and head coverings, um, and then a very strict procedure to doff them as well. We're still not there. Like we, we, I think most hospitals don't have proper neck coverings yet. And I've been told, you know, not to show up with my improvised neck coverings if I, if I want to work. So <laughs> I think, I think you might've seen my picture on uh, Twitter where we use surgical towels and tape them at the back while we were doing an endoscopic procedure as a, uh, uh, a recommended neck covering that we could create from scratch. Well, yeah, I've seen, you know, size five Pampers. It's a great, uh, <laughs> makes for a great covering. That's exactly what my toddler son's at too. It's great. <laughs> an unlimited supply of these if you guys want any. <laughs> now uh, the, uh, 
Um, I've been quite critical of uh, Ontario Health's uh, PPE guidelines, but, uh, and, and as fast as this is evolving, you're right, we can't, uh, there's no blame to be assigned to public health, uh, uh, the, the creators of public health documents on the basis of this. But there's such a tremendous trend, as we've noticed, where the, uh, the trendsetters are not us in Canada. Uh, Massachusetts General Hospital now is, uh, of course, they are trendsetters in general, but uh, it's now recommending N95s for use for suspected COVID patients and for positive COVID patients, whereas we're still dropping precautions with surgical masks in Ontario. Yeah, it's it's unusual. Like we, we're seeing, I don't know, like the lessons learned overseas, for some reason, we have to learn the hard way over and over and over again. Um, it's bizarre. Um you know, I get there's a shortage of N95s, but there are protocols to reuse them. Um, I think um, eventually we are going to converge to what the Chinese discovered is effective. Um, it's just a matter of time. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of mask extension, mask sterilization, and mask reuse. And that might be where uh, where other institutions may have the technology and are, are pushing forward in those uh, in those areas. Exactly. Um, a group of us bought like these uh, uh, these giant like industrial respirators that make you look like Darth Vader. So that's <laughs> like doomsday strategy if we have to work and there's nothing left. <laughs> I just need to get a cape to go with it, I think. So should we be protecting our pets? We heard about uh, transmission of, uh, of COVID to tigers. And then there was an article in Science published today on susceptibility of ferrets, cats, dogs, and other domesticated animals to SARS coronavirus too. The findings? Ferrets and cats are highly susceptible to COVID. Dogs have low susceptibility. And livestock, including pigs, chickens, and ducks, are not susceptible to the virus. Oh, we gotta find nasal prongs that'll go on uh, cats and and, uh, and ferrets. And ferrets. That's gonna be an interesting uh, job. But interesting research in the sense that you know, the prevailing hypothesis is that this is a zoonosis, and uh, and uh, and seeing transmission across to animals is not something that should be surprising in this setting. Yeah, I think I read somewhere there's hundreds of bat coronaviruses. There's hundreds of them. And there's uh, fantastic uh, uh, articles have been written pretending towards pandemics occurring on the basis of just bats alone from coronaviruses in the era after SARS. And they're predicting everything that we're going through now. Excellent. Well, that's it for us today. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you uh, for listening as well. Um, we're always um, welcome to hear feedback. Uh, so uh, I guess like, share, subscribe, and if there's any comments, put it across on our Twitter feed at the Med Club To. We'll have um, links to all the thing articles that we talked about as well.